trust we're all delighted and glad to be back in the house of the Lord again this morning. Uh, we always do ask continued interest in your prayers as we stand before you. Would you mind if we turn back to Revelation 20 again? That'd be all right with everybody. Hope so, because that's what we're going to do. There's lots of good information out there on the book of Revelation. Um, Elder Michael Goins has written a book called Glory to Come. Elder Joe Holder has written a book on Revelation, an entire book titled Images in Redemptive History. Outside of that, there are a few other people that have, have written on this subject, maybe that are not primitive Baptists, but that they do hold somewhat of a reasonable viewpoint of the book of Revelation. When I say reasonable, this is paralleled with the idea of fantastical or exaggerated. There is a reasonable understanding of this book. Uh, there's some good information in Hassel's church history uh, sprinkled throughout that thick novel he wrote. Uh, I've also got some good insight from a man named Ray Summers who wrote a book entitled Worthy is the Lamb. As always, anything that you read outside of the Bible, anything you read outside of the Bible, you have to eat the meat and throw away the bones. Be a responsible, grown-up reader and listener outside of the Bible. Um, that being said, I'd like to read to you a passage from Mr. Summer's book uh, specifically concerning the 20th chapter of Revelation. Uh, and within this chapter, as we said last week, you've got 65 other books that lead up to the book of Revelation. Outside of the 20th chapter of Revelation, there's nobody else that mentions anything called a thousand-year reign. You'd not have any idea that we have today about this so-called thousand-year reign if the book of Revelation wasn't written. Well, now that being said, if it's in the Bible, it's important, correct? Sure it is. The Bible as a whole is important. And the Bible as a whole, though, has to be taken as a whole. Not here a little and there a little and thereupon build a doctrine. In Revelation chapter 20, Mr. Sommer says that Revelation is a series of apocalyptic images given for the assurance of the people of God that Christ is going to be victorious over all opposition. That really is a pretty good outline of Revelation. Christ is going to be victorious over all opposition. Now, you may stand up, raise your hand, say, well, of course we know that. Really? Does it really look like all the time that Christ is going to win? Do you ever have doubts 
Are you ever discouraged? John the Baptist himself, when he was in prison, sent his disciples unto the Lord Jesus and said, Ask him this question, Art thou really he that should come, or do I need just look for somebody else? Remember that? That was Matthew, I think it's Matthew 11 that he wrote that, or that that's written. Art thou he that should come, or should I look for someone else? Do we look for another? I'm thankful that the kind response of Christ was not to rebuke John in his doubt and discouragement, but he simply told those uh, disciples that came, said, you go and tell John again those things that you both do see and hear. The blind are healed. The lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Asaph himself asked this question in Psalm 73 when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he saw that there seemed to be no end to the coming onslaught of wickedness in the world around us. That they seem to just prosper and nothing seems to happen to them. He said, I considered all this, but until I came to the house of God, until I came back to the word of God, I was sort of envious of the wicked. They don't seem to have trouble like we have. They don't seem to have problems like we have. He said, but behold, I came back to the house of God. Behold, I came back to the word of God. And I saw what a slippery place they were in. God doesn't always take account of counts on Friday afternoon. God doesn't always make folks pay their bills at the end of this month. As a teenager, I was, you were indestructible. As a teenager, I did things that I thought, nothing's going to happen to me. Played sports all the time. Did rambunctious things all the time. Uh, did things to my feet and to my knees and to my hands and to my shoulders when I was 16 and 18 that now at 40 and 45 and nearly 50, I'm paying for those things I bought way back then. It is the same with this life. It may seem like there is no end to the wicked. And it may seem like that there is no justice poured out on those who do unrighteous deeds. So John writes this revelation. And really when you get started within verse uh, chapter 12 on to about chapter 20, you, con- you see this constant conflict in the book of Revelation between the powers of Satan and Jesus Christ and His redeemed. Let me read some more concerning uh, Revelation 20. Find the greatest enemy of Christ, whether corrupt religion, godless government, social anarchy, or any other. Well, we don't know anything about that, do we? Whoo, man. He hit that nail on the head. 
put it in place of emperor worship, which is what the seven churches in Asia were kind of dealing with at this time. And really, every generation down through time has always had to deal with the concept of political worship. We're going to get to that a little bit more uh, here in the next few verses. But suffice it to say, find the greatest enemy of Christ. Put it in the place of emperor worship and see its eventual failure as the living Christ, the redeeming lamb, marches to victory over chaotic world conditions. Worthy is the lamb. I don't have the authority to say this is that. I don't have the authority to say this is that. Now you say, what are you, what are you talking about, preacher? In the book of Joel, chapter 2, Joel has a prophecy of the coming of Christ and the establishing of his church. In Joel, chapter 2, he says, there shall come a time when the bridegroom shall come out of his chamber and the bride shall come out of her closet. And at that day, the Lord says in Job chapter 2, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions. The Apostle Peter stands on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2, and he says concerning that prophecy of Joel, this is that. What Joel spoke about in Joel chapter 2 is being revealed and right now. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God inhabited the formed church there on Pentecost, and they spoke with new tongues, and they dreamed dreams, and they had visions. But I don't have the ability, I don't have the authority to say, this is that. I have just enough of an inquisitive mind to say, is this that? So when you get through reading in the book of Revelation, we've all read about the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation that people take in their foreheads or in their right hands. And those who don't take this mark are not allowed to buy and sell and operate in society, right? I don't have the ability or the authority to say this is that. I simply have an inquisitive mind to realize we've got enough problems in America right now over people saying, take this, or you can't work. You with me? It's to show you how cyclical, cyclical how, how, how repetitive human history is. It's also to show you how diligent the devil is. In Revelation 19, Beginning with, oh, let's see, you could start with verse 17. He says, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, 
and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. What have we just read about? We've just read about the defeat of Satan. And I like the way that the text was set up. The text was set up first. Watch this. The text was set up first by an angel in verse 17 calling to the fowls of the air, saying, come and gather yourselves to this great feast. There's fixed to be a great feast for you fowls of the air, the defeated army of wickedness. Battle hadn't even started yet. And yet the, animal, the, the angel is standing here calling these animals saying, you're fixing to see something. You're fixing to have something. You're fixing to be filled with the flesh of all the wicked who oppose Almighty God. Now whether this is real, excuse me, whether this is literal or whether this is spiritual, it is real. Remember we said last week something can be real and not physical. It can be spiritual. What you need to gather from this is that the angel is declaring victory before the battle even gets started. God is that mighty. God is that great. He is declaring the end from the very beginning. Remember, that's what, that's what we said in Isaiah 46. I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning is, is a way for God to say, I know history in advance. I know what's going to happen before it occurs. And we, as God's people, are not to take rest in our understanding. We are not to take rest in our ability or in our worth. We are to take rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ in the fact that He that is mighty... And he that is able is our God. In chapter 20, verse 1, he saw an angel come down from heaven with a key and a chain to bind the devil. What kind of angel is this, you reckon? Is this Michael the archangel? Is this Gabriel? question comes to my mind that in the New Testament when Jesus was casting out devils 
They criticized him and ridiculed him and said, you do this by the power of Beelzebub. And he says, well, if I do this by the power of the devil, if the devil is casting out devils, if he's divided against himself, how shall his house stand? He says, no, rather, if I do this by the finger of God, no doubt the kingdom of God is come unto you. And then he gives that dissertation where he says a man that is a house owner is comfortable with his house and comfortable with his possessions until a stronger than he comes and binds him and then ransacks his house and takes all he has. Let me ask you all, this, is, this kind of perplexes me a little bit when you get into this area of premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism, all these millennial thoughts out here. Who is the devil? Is he reigning now or is he defeated? Is he defeated now or not? He's defeated. And he knows he's defeated. In chapter 12. I think it's, I think it's 12. In chapter 12, I'd like, you, I'd like you to notice this. There's this woman with child ready to be delivered of her child. We touched briefly on this last week. Y'all remember this? Please tell me your memory is not as bad as mine. Uh, it says in verse 6, when this woman fled, into, uh, excuse me, verse 5, and she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, her child was caught up. Um, unto God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. Oh boy, I like that phrase. He was cast out. You remember in John chapter 12 and verse 31? That Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And if I be lifted up, we'll draw all men unto me. The all men being drawn unto him are the all men of the elect family of God for whom he is being lifted up for. And I heard a loud voice in verse 10 saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. What's the standing of the devil? The standing of the devil is he is defeated. He is cast down. He is essentially a dog on a chain. Is he not? It says in verse 11, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives under the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Ah, now pay attention. Pay attention now, folks, on the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. 
And to the woman were given two wings of her great evil, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that she might, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of reading in that. But I hope you got from the fact that we read in there at least three times the devil attempted something and was defeated. The devil tried something and was defeated. His plans failed. He tried to make war with the woman bringing forth the child, the Jewish nation. And when he couldn't defeat her and he couldn't get her seed, he went to make war in verse 17, with the remnant of her seed. When was the last time the Bible told you about a woman having seed? Does it sound familiar? Genesis chapter 3, where he told the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Hold on, friends. The woman doesn't have the seed. The man has the seed. So how is it that this woman is going to have seed except that she is a virgin that conceives by the Holy Ghost? See the connection that we're making here from Genesis all the way through the birth of Christ, all the way here to the book of Revelation. He can't defeat the Christ. Next thing he goes after is the remnant of his seed. Who are the remnant of the seed of Christ? The people of God. You're next in line. And here we find ourselves in Revelation 20 with dealing with those next in line. Some people have the mistaken idea that if, that if God really cares about us, we'll never have a problem in life. And I think it's interesting here that as we read this chapter and we read this passage, that as you deal also not only with the, the binding or the limiting of the power of, de of the devil, verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. I don't have any deep insight as to why he used the term specifically beheaded. I've heard some people go into great detail with this, that it actually means this and something else, but the thought had occurred to me. There's only a couple of people in the New Testament that we know about who were beheaded for their witness. One was John the Baptist. And Jesus said concerning John the Baptist, he said, there's not greater born of woman than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was beheaded. According to history, Peter was crucified upside down. 
the Apostle John that's writing this is exiled to the island of Patmos after he was dipped in boiling oil and actually survived. The historical record of those who followed Christ is not one of health and wealth the remainder of their days. It's one of pain and suffering here on this earth. And the churches in Asia Minor probably have this idea, what good is it to serve God? You know why I think that? Because you think that. I think that. I think that sometimes. I know you think that sometimes. When life gets hard and life gets difficult, you stand back just like John did. John is in prison there in Matthew 11. John the Baptist was in prison because he told someone, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He lost his head for that. And the man that he is six months older than and that he had paved the way for, the Lord Jesus Christ, is out walking free. And John the Baptist is saying, what good is it to serve God? He's going to end up losing his life for the witness of Christ. Oh, by the way, this is also uh, one of the points that the Islamic world uses to, quote, prove, unquote, that Jesus was not the Son of God, really, because what great mighty king would allow his son to suffer like this? you don't understand, they don't understand the suffering of Christ was He wasn't suffering for Himself. He was suffering for you. He went and took your place in the judgment of God. And the wrath of God was poured out upon us, upon Him, and not us. And they missed that point. And by missing that point, they missed the whole purpose of Christ. So you get this idea here that the churches in Asia are seeing people martyred for the name of Christ. And it seems like the wicked who are doing the killing, there's no end to them. The problem that we're having even in America today with this virus is that it was made political to start with and not medical. If it had been left in the medical arena where it belongs and not in the political arena, our concept of this would be completely different. But because politics has reached its ugly, wicked fingers into it, we've got enough common sense after reading the Bible that you don't trust politicians, even the ones you like. And so John is reminding the churches at Asia, not only did I see the defeat of Satan, but I saw also the triumph of the redeemed. Uh, <clears throat> here's, here's another little clue about, Revela about Revelation 20. The thousand-year reign is, is not 
as we read earlier. It, it's not the main focus. People, people get, take that phrase and they come up with some of the most outlandish uh, ideas and doctrines when they miss the complete point of this chapter. The complete point of this chapter is the defeat of wickedness and the triumph of the redeemed. It's all over the chapter. Also, by the way, uh, there's a large group of people on this planet that believe in something called soul sleep. That when the body dies, the soul doesn't uh, live on in eternity just in the mind of God until he decides to have the final resurrection of everybody, then everybody lives. Well, according to even their beliefs on this thousand-year reign, you listening? According to even their belief on the thousand-year reign, this thousand-year reign is before the final resurrection. Catch it? Thousand-year reign, and then the end, then the final resurrection, and everybody lives. Well, if that be the case, what are these people doing living here? They're living during the reign of Christ. They're living during the reign of Christ. And by the way, John did not see that I saw the glorified bodies of saints. He said, I saw the souls of saints. There's something in you that does not die. Your soul and spirit within you does not die. This will be possibly next week's sermon, but I'll go ahead and tell you this. That at death, both the wicked and the righteous continue to exist in a conscious state wherever they are. They know who they are, they know where they are, and they know why they're there. But let's back up. The reason that I started in verse 7 of 1917 and I read through 20 and verse 3 is that, as we've, we've stated before, sometimes chapter breaks in the Bible are not our best friends. They're put in there to help us memorize and read the Bible better. Chapter breaks are put in there by men. I think that the first three verses of, of chapter 20 belong with what happened in chapter 19. It's just the full combination of the end of this war of the wicked against God and his army. So as the defeat of the beast and the false prophet is laid out in 1920, you have then in 20, verse 1 and 2, the defeat of the devil or the limitation of the devil or the binding of the devil. This binding was that he would deceive the nations no more. I'd like you to notice also, he was deceived the nations no more to the thousand years be fulfilled. Drop down. To verse 7. And when the, this is uh, chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. Now, stop right there. Don't read any further. Last week after church, uh, Brother Jerry came up to me and said, you know, I remember growing up as a child uh, hearing this tribulation period that 
you may wake up one day and if, if you're not part of that group, everybody's going to be gone that you love. And he said, I remember as a child hearing thunderstorms come through and, and being afraid maybe that the end had come. I'm still here. I've missed it. Is my mama still here? That is not the purpose of the gospel. The gospel is not here to scare you and terrify you. If you're being scared and terrified by your preacher, he's lying to you. Now, that does not mean that we are to comfort people in their sin. We are to comfort people despite their sin. Because they're comforted in the person of Christ. You're not to go out of here wondering if you've done enough. Because at the bottom of this chapter, there are some folks that are judged by their works. And let me tell you, those that are judged by their works do not find themselves in a happy place. But that's another time, another season. I'm getting distracted here. What, what I want you to gather from this is that here's the devil loosed out of his prison for a period of time. And what does he do? He goes back to his old wicked ways. In other words, it doesn't matter what situation and it doesn't matter what circumstance the devil finds him in. The devil never changes. But you've also heard about this. That there's coming one day some great war upon this earth and it's just going to slaughter people by the millions and it's just, you know, movies or the Terminator movie was, was made out of that. You know, this futuristic age where men fought machines and the escape from New York and escape from uh, Los Angeles, these futuristic movies, Running Man, all these things, they all predict this futuristic time where the world has basically destroyed itself. Read with me what happens in the end. The devil is loosed out of his prison and he goes to deceive the nations, Gog and Magog. In verse 9, and they went up on the breadth of the earth. They went up on the breadth of the earth and they compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city got right up to them. And what does it say? Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them all. Look at that. Standing on top of this mountain are the saints of God. Standing on top of this mountain, as it says, is the camp of God. And coming up from every angle around it are the wicked coming up upon them. And just about the time they get there, what happens? Fire falls from heaven and it's all over. Interesting. Don't hear that much in the world around you, do you? Why? Well, that just doesn't scare people. And fear sells. Fear sells not only on CNN, but it sells at the church down the street. You're not going to pack churches full with the message we've got. People look at us and say, why are you all so small? I guess we don't scare people enough. Well, you can pack them high and deep with emotion and anxiety. And it's really kind of a, a shame to God's people that they can't just be satisfied. 
with the victorious glory of Jesus Christ. Let me let me uh, <clears throat> kind of ask you another question too, because we're going to get to some things here a little bit that, uh, about that. Uh, the angel came down and bound Satan that he should deceive the nations no more. What was it like in the time of Christ? What was it like in the time of the first calling of the disciples in first century Christianity? Well, Paul asked this question. Paul, Paul asked a question in Romans uh, chapter 3. And he says here, he says, What advantage hath the Jew? This is Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. So the time of Christ, the time of the disciples, and as a matter of fact, every time before that to the time of Abraham, who had the word of God? The Jews did. The Israelite nation. What did everybody else have? What did the Philistines have? What did the Moabites have? What did the Ammonites have? Paganism. Superstitions. The world is created out here by something and it floats on the back of four elephants, as the Hindus tell us. My question is, what are the elephants standing on? All sorts of myths, legends, and fairy tales filled the heathen pagan nations around Israel. They were deceived completely. There came a time when Satan was limited in this respect of deceiving the nations, and Christ came and looked at His twelve apostles and said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. What do we have now? Oh, we got some of these nations out here. They still believe in some of the wonkiest, most craziest ideas out here. Communism, and socialism, and heathenism, and Darwinism still is an enemy to Christ. But even in the midst of these nations that hate and oppose Christ, what is happening? Churches are growing right in their very midst. How is it that you've got, you know, the bamboo curtain of China or you've got the iron curtain of Russia? How is it that you've got these places, the door is closed to the gospel and yet you've got churches there? How is that possible? According to what we're told in the religious world around us, people can't be saved unless you take the gospel to them. And yet, they get there, 
And they already believed in God. How was that possible? Paul went down to the city of Corinth one time. And did not God tell him, Take no fear, Paul. Fear not, for I have much people in this city. He told him ahead of time, before you even get there with the teaching, I have already much people here. How was that possible? The misapplication of biblical truth is fueling the idea that Christ is going to come back and reign a thousand years. Let me show you. In Hebrews chapter 8. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. I'll take time for you to get there because I want you to see this. When you find Hebrews chapter 8, say amen. Right. We understand that God gave a new covenant to His church. It says right here in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 8, For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them. I've underlined the word them in red in my Bible. I would encourage you to do the same thing. Because God did not find fault with His covenant. He found fault with the people holding the covenant. He found fault with them. You. Me. He saith, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. That's very plain English, isn't it? That's very plain teaching. That God is making reference to the time when He led Israel out of Egypt, gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and Moses was to deliver that and minister that to the people of Israel. That was plain and simple, wasn't it? And God said that wasn't good enough. Because the people can't keep the covenant. He says, therefore, I'm going to make a new covenant. Verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. We understand this to be the new covenant of grace. That the reason you're sitting here right now enjoying this wonderful sermon is because the Spirit of... I hope you're enjoying it. It's because the Spirit of God is in you, has motivated you, and moved you to love God. The misapplication of this right here is they say, well, that's not happening right now. This new covenant isn't happening right now. This must be something that can only be fulfilled in a thousand year perfect reign. You say, well, Paul says after those days, 
Paul does say after those days. But did you ever catch it that Paul is not writing this of his own? Paul is quoting Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah says this. Ezekiel says this way back yonder. Both of them prophesied of a coming time. And they say, well, see, they prophesied of a thousand year reign. No, they prophesied of a time when the Holy Spirit would come down and physically inhabit his church. He would give them a new heart. He would write these things in their minds. They would be to him a people and he would be their God. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Carrying on this same idea. This same thought. Paul paralleled the giving of the first covenant on Mount Sinai with the application of this second covenant in Hebrews 8. Those two parallels were existing right there. Now you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Are you in 2 Corinthians? When you find it, say amen. Sounds good. Verse 3. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be, what's that next word? Epistle. You are the epistle of Christ ministered by us. It's a beautiful statement. That's a beautiful sentence. An epistle is something written, correct? Something that is ministered is something that is attended to. You, the church at Corinth, are the epistle of Christ you're attended to by the ministers. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. So if this is supposed to be some thousand year reign way down in the future, why is Paul saying this is happening now? No, this is a thing now. This is what the new birth is now. The writing is not in stone. The writing is not on paper with ink as he was doing. The writing was in fleshy tables of the heart with the finger of God that he is writing in their minds and in their hearts his law. So that's not a thousand years in the future as fulfilled right now. So what you have now in, that exists in the world, you have these little wicked republics, these little wicked communist countries, these little wicked tyrannical dictatorships around here. As much as they want to snuff out and burn down the church of God, they cannot do it. You can continue to burn your churches in Canada, but it's not going to stop the working of God. You can continue to threaten people in China and Korea and in Russia, but it's not going to stop the people, the, the, the purpose and work of God. And if that mess bleeds into America and our dictatorship here takes up the idea that it also wants to snuff out the church of God, it won't happen here. You can't stop the work of God. Because if they didn't notice, if you didn't notice, when you're reading in the Bible and you're reading in the book of Revelation, you're reading about this beast and you're reading about this false prophet and you're reading about all these things, there's a phrase that comes up a few times concerning this about chapter 13 that power was given unto him. Power was given 
unto him. Which means he didn't have the power, it was given to him. God doesn't need power given unto him. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms, I've declared this unto thee once, twice have I said it, power alone belongeth unto God. He is not limited in his power. He's unlimited in his power. It is the devil who is chained, bound, or limited in his effort. And whatever effort he has, has to be given to him. And so it says here, another little thought that I had in mind, that the devil deceived them. Have you ever noticed in 1 Samuel chapter 5? 1 Samuel chapter 5 is the time when the Philistines took the ark of God here in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and they brought it back to their homeland and they placed the ark of God into the house of Dagon. Surely you've heard this story. They bring the ark of God and they set it down in the house of Dagon and they come back the next morning and the statue, the stone statue of Dagon, which was probably a half man, half fish thing that they worshipped. And it's so interesting that as the pagan nations around us have these ideas of how the world was created and how the world was formed, that it was in the hand of the Jews, the simple phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was Paul who said to the church at Rome, if we are children of God, the Creator, and we are human beings, then think not that the Creator is likened unto four-footed beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air Himself. If you call yourself a child of God, then He's not a half-bird, half-animal thing, as the Pharaohs and the Egyptians back in their day pictured their things that they worshipped as these half-animal creations, half-male creations. Here you are in the house of Dagon. The Ark of the Covenant of God sits down in front of Dagon and God says, I'm not having that. And they come the next morning and the stone stone of Dagon is fallen over. So it says here in 1 Samuel chapter 5 that they picked him up and they propped him up again there in the house of Dagon before the Ark of the Covenant. And they come back the next morning and what do they find? But the head of Dagon is lopped off and his hands are lopped off. He is not a God who can stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What do the Philistines do? Do they fall down before the Ark of God and say, God have mercy on us? Do they call a camp meeting and say, friends, we found a God who's greater than our God. We need to rethink what we're doing. No, in the eyes of the wicked, it doesn't matter how much truth you tell them, they still will not believe. And you see that even right now in American society, it doesn't matter how much truth you show to somebody. They don't let truth get in the way of the facts. And here's what's said. Chapter 5, verse 10, Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out saying, They have brought about the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. These pagan nations know a little bit about the history of Israel, don't they? 
It was said even of Rahab the harlot, you can go over and you can read this in Judges chapter 2, Rahab the harlot, when those spies came to spy out the city of Jericho, they said, we have heard that your God is with you and we have heard that the waters were dried up when you crossed the Red Sea and when we heard this, our heart melted within us. We were afraid, is what she's saying. We are terrified that you're here. And as a matter of fact, in Judges chapter 6, uh, when they all get noticed that Israel's on the outside, it said the city was shut up tight. Wasn't nobody going out and nobody's coming in. If they knew that the God of Israel was greater than their God, why didn't they raise the white flag and run out there and say, tell your God to have mercy on us? Because man is not mentally convinced against God. He has to be changed on the inside in his heart and in his spirit. And the proclamation of the gospel cannot do that. Only the power of God can do that. So here are these Philistines. And they send away this ark. Let it be somebody else's trouble. And the Ekronites are like, I don't want it. Take it away from us. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. Verse 11. Send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it go again to his own people. That it slay us not and our people. We don't want it here. It's a bother to us. It's a problem to us. It's a thorn in our flesh. Get over there in the book of Revelation. You read about those two witnesses that appeared before the city, they that had uh, power to call down fire from heaven and they that had power to dry up the seas and or turn the seas to blood. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a couple of characters over there in the Old Testament that sound a lot like that. Moses had power to uh, turn the Nile into blood and, 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 and uh, Elijah had power to call down fire from heaven. Uh, and it, it, it says there that those two servants of the Lord tormented that city day and night and they were glad when those two witnesses died. My friends, the church is a thorn in the flesh to America even today. The church is a thorn in the flesh to America today because, praise God, there's enough people out here saying, hey, let's ask questions and figure out what's going on, not just follow everybody like a bunch of lemmings off the ledge. And you're a thorn in the flesh to those who want to control you. You are a thorn in the flesh to those who want to dominate you. The Bible says that the, the devil himself was bound up that he should not deceive the nations any longer. Aren't you thankful that we have the truth of God today? Aren't you thankful that we have these good truths, this teaching here today to deliver you from this present evil, wicked, corrupt, perverse generation? But I tell you, it says that the devil should deceive the nations no more. But did you remember that Peter also said, be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. He's not deceiving the nations as a whole, but I guarantee you he's got power to deceive you as a person. For the Bible tells us that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. It's their job, their, their, job, their goal to deceive people. And they like being deceived. And the devil, one of his things that he does to sort of deceive us is in the area of discouragement. If the devil can't make you proud of what you're doing, he'll make you discouraged so that you don't do it at all. He is this wily, crafty, slick little creature 
And he has deceived enough of this nation right now into thinking that one of the greatest things they need to be taught is self-esteem. That you need to think more about yourself. No, friends. You need to think more about Christ. I agree. I agree that God has given certain gifts and certain talents to people in this world. There are people who build things that I could not build. There are people who draw things I could not draw. There are athletes who do things that I could not do. There are engineers who design things I could never design. But if your identity is tied up in your talent of what you can do, what happens if you lose that talent? Well, we've seen that this week. Y'all watch the... Has anybody even watched the Olympics? I haven't watched any of them. I just really haven't cared. But that little girl that, that has lost her equilibrium and her ability to discern top from bottom needed to sit down or she's going to kill herself and she's going to hurt her team. Those of us that have played sports, we understand what's going on. We understand that there's a reason that the relief pitcher comes in for the starting pitcher, that there's a second string quarterback that plays for the first string quarterback. We understand why these things happen. And these folks that run around screaming at her that she's quit and give up on her team have no idea what's going on. They really don't. But if that's her only identity, that she's a great athlete, what is she now? Lou Gehrig, first one that developed what we call Lou Gehrig's disease, lost his ability to play baseball. What is he now? I realize he's been passed on, but I realize that. Well, I, I was going to try to remember the guy for the New Orleans Saints. I can't, I can't remember his name. He, he got uh, Lou Gehrig's disease as well. Right after Hurricane Katrina, the Saints and the Falcons played there in the Superdome, and the Saints just wore out the Falcons. But there's, there's a statue outside of the uh, Superdome, or it's not Superdome, what's it called? Who cares? Uh, of Falcons. Fourth and a long shot, and they had to punt. And they hiked the ball back to their, their kicker, and he went to punt. And this feller, he right there on top of him, blocked the punt. The punt rolled into the end zone. He recovers it for a touchdown. City of New Orleans is ecstatic. That man that blocked that punt, it wasn't long after that where he developed Lou Gehrig's disease himself. He's now confined to a wheelchair. He doesn't play sports anymore. What's his identity? If you're seeking to find your identity in something you are, something you do, something you are, something you do can be taken from you like that. Your identity is not in something you are or something you do. Your identity is something is in something that somebody did for you. In the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself on Calvary's cross for you. That whether you're the smartest man on the planet or you're the most crippled, uh, mentally deficient person on this planet. You matter not because of you, but because of Christ. You matter because of who God is. You matter because of what He has done for you. And people are rolling around now, I think, in a lot of anxiety and discouragement because they haven't been enough. They're not good enough. Friends, it doesn't matter if I'm good enough. It doesn't matter if you are good enough. Guess what? Christ is good enough. If we spend more time trying to glorify Christ 
and trying to live like him instead of trying to impress the world around us, our life would be a better place. We would be in better places in our life if we just understood this concept. Christ is enough. Christ is the victor. Christ is the one to whom we owe everything. People have often said, well, what's the secret to life? The secret to life is joy. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And I understand what that phrase means. Uh, but somebody, somebody questioned me about that here uh, a few weeks ago and said, um, what do you mean Jesus first and others second? Jesus is the umbrella. The way that you treat others, the way that you treat yourself, is based on what you think about God. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to submit themselves unto their own husbands as unto the Lord. Parents are to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children are to honor their parents in the Lord. He's not first. He's everything. He's the very reason you do anything. Why do you continue to live with this person who's unlovable? Because God lives with me and I'm unlovable. Why do you continue to tolerate this person who is hateful and mean and doesn't like you? Because God tolerates you when you are hateful and mean and you don't like Him. God is not first. God is everything. And when you see His sufficiency, when you see His completeness, when you see His victory, as outlined here in this chapter, that ought to cause you to rejoice. That ought to cause your whole focus in life to change. To realize He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the reason for my living. And the Bible says, because He lives, ye shall live also. That this world is not it. This earth is not the end. I was, one thing that made me start thinking about a lot of this was uh, the death of uh, Elder David Machiavello here just two or three weeks ago. He laid down one night, he had a massive heart attack, and he never woke up. And I happen to think, you know, this life, <clears throat> I wake up a lot of times in the morning. Y'all ever woken up from a bad dream? Man, you, have you ever had that bad dream that was just real? And you had, when you woke up, you had to kind of check yourself to find out what's just happened. And then you realize, wow, just a dream. And then you lay there for two hours thinking about it. Uh, those are real in your mind and the effect that they have on you. There's other times I've woken up in the morning, sat up on the side of the bed, and I knew a dream the night before. I knew there was something going on in there, but I don't really remember. Doesn't really have an effect on me going forward. I just knew something was going on. And I happen to think, I wonder, I just wonder, if when he went to sleep that night, he woke up in the presence of Christ. He said, I think something's happened, but who cares? I'm going to go on and never look back. When you get a glimpse that Revelation 20, it, 
It doesn't, it's not about Christ establishing something on this earth. It's not about Him making this earth fit to live in. It's about the glory that we shall see when we see Him face to face for all eternity. And we come to the true understanding of the defeat of Satan and the triumph of the Lord. Thank you for your good